not supposed to like to the point that you would not admit to other people you like it, right? You have so much social pressure on you that you will not admit that you like certain things. Uh, and there's all kinds of different uh, things that it could be. You may be the world's biggest village people fan, right? All these years later, some 40 years on, you're still cranking the village people every week, right? It's probably not something you share with people all that frequently. This is, apparently this is what they look like 20 years later. I would not even want to know what they look like today. They've aged quite a bit. Uh, maybe it's a food thing. Maybe you eat foods that are so gross that you don't want to admit to people that you want to eat them. This one is a Hawaiian one, apparently. I found this on the internet this week uh, with pineapple. This is not the first time I've used the double down as an illustration because it is one of the most disgusting looking feeds that's ever been created, right? Just as much. And someone's sitting there going, but I like it so much, right? It's a guilty pleasure. Um, maybe you are one of the few people in the world that think Jar Jar Binks is a great character, deserves to be in the annals of Obi-Wan Kenobi and all these kinds of guys, right? There's all of these things that you might like that other people tell you you aren't supposed to like. And it's very interesting the way that that pressure works. Most of these things are silly, right? Nobody uh, is having much, nobody is sitting crying at night as a closeted village people fan, right? I don't think, right? Nobody's like, oh, I want to share this so bad, but no one will let me. But there are other things that we feel like we have to hide. Uh, through this series on John, one of the things we've come back to over and over and over again is identity and who you are and who you share yourself to be and who people perceive you to be, right? We've talked about John. We've talked about Nathaniel. We've talked about Mary. We talked about the wedding last week at Canaan. There's all these people in the book of John who have these aspects of their personality that they don't want to share, these things that they don't want to express to the rest of the world. And this week, we're going to talk about someone else and this week, it is someone who has a guilty pleasure, but their guilty pleasure is Jesus. The thing that they believe in and they care about and is important to them that they don't want to tell the world about is that they really like the teachings of Jesus. Uh, the character is um, Nicodemus. And when we meet Nicodemus, Nicodemus is sneaking to Jesus at night, right? He is kind of, you can imagine like an old movie, he's slipping in between doorways, in the shadows, looking both ways, trying to see if anyone's following him, right? There's no way that he could come to Jesus and just let the world know. He can't do it in the daylight. He can't do it with crowds around. He has to wait until it's about bedtime and he can come bug Jesus in the quiet of a place where no one will see them, right? And so this is Nicodemus's approach. Um, part of this is because Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, the Sanhedrin, I have regularly <laughs> called the student council of the ancient world. That may not be the most fair term, but this is a group of Jewish leaders, a Jewish government in Judea that has as much power as Rome allows it to have. And that's why I call it the student council, right? Student council can do anything that the principal lets them do. And if the principal doesn't want them to do it, they can't do it. And this is kind of the way the Sanhedrin works. It's a formal legal body, but if at any point they make a decision that goes beyond their authority or that Rome just doesn't like, Rome comes back in and says, uh-uh, no, you can't do that. Uh, we see this in the crucifixion of Jesus. The Sanhedrin decides that he should die. 
And then they go to the Roman governor and go, please, pretty, please, pretty, please, pretty, please, can we kill him? Right? Because they don't have the authority to do it on their own. And Nicodemus is one of these 70 people, 70 men who would have served on this council. And because of that, uh, this, is, this council is full of particularly Pharisees, people who don't like Jesus. This is a body who will eventually vote to condemn Jesus to death. And so there's this political pressure, this issue here, where he cannot openly tell people, yeah, I like Jesus. He can't show up and listen to Jesus' sermons without the Pharisees pushing back. If you were in feast groups this week, we talked about Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And, one, and Nicodemus shows up in that passage, right? Nicodemus is all he says, he goes, oh, we shouldn't, um, you know, we have to like put him before trial. They were trying to kill him. They said, we should kill Jesus. And Nicodemus goes, well, he should go to trial first, right? And immediately they go, what? Are you one of his followers? Shut up. We're going to kill him. And Nicodemus backs off because he's being kind of found out as the secret follower of Jesus. And so this is where the story picks up. Jesus has, uh, Nicodemus has followed Jesus and he wants to speak to him late at night. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Um, it's really, I'm not sure if you see the tension here, but Jesus is not being very nice to Nicodemus in this way. Nicodemus wants to come and just nibble on the teachings of Jesus, right? Nicodemus is keeping total control of the situation. He comes and he goes, I think you're a great teacher, so I've come here in the middle of the night under the mask of darkness so that I could hear a little bit more from you. And Jesus goes, oh, you want a little bit more from me? You need to be born again. You need to start over. You need to give me your entire life. I think the subtext is you need to be willing to claim me and not just come to me in the dark when nobody else is looking. Right? This is a big ask. He's saying, I want you to give your whole life to me. Not 10 minutes in the middle of the night when nobody's looking. I want you to give your entire self. This language of being born again is asking for a total huge commitment from Nicodemus. And so Jesus sees the game that Nicodemus is playing and he goes, mm -mm, no, pal, you are not coming to me at this time of night just trying to get a little bit. I want your entire life. Uh, Nicodemus does what many of us would do and he plays stupid, acts like he doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. Uh, verse 4, how can anyone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Um, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So, uh, you know, Nicodemus plays dumb. He goes, I, I don't, what are you talking about? I could not enter my mother's womb again. To which Jesus' response is essentially, no duh, Sherlock. You know, we all know that. Obviously, that's not what I'm talking about. 
And so instead, Jesus talks about being born of the water and being born of the Spirit. Uh, there's several ways to interpret this passage. My understanding of it, and the one that would be common in the leadership of our church here, is Jesus is talking to them about baptism. Baptism is one of these important images throughout Scripture for how one gives oneself to God. How do you start over? How are you born again? How do you give the totality of your life to God? You do it via baptism. Uh, there's an intimate relationship in the New Testament between baptism and the reception of the Holy Spirit. That's another key in this verse, right? Jesus is talking about baptism, and all of a sudden he's talking about the Spirit. Why is he doing that? Well, because those are intimately connected in the New Testament. When Jesus is baptized, what does he see? The dove coming down, uh, the Holy Spirit coming down in the shape of a dove, right? When Peter preaches uh, in Jerusalem, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Right? These things are intimately connected. And so Jesus says, if you want to start over, if you want to really give your full self to me, you need to have a spiritual rebirth. You need to have a time where you give yourself spiritually to me and become a new person spiritually in the way you were born as a new person coming out of your mother's womb. This is the way that Jesus asked for commitment. And then he connects to the Holy Spirit, and this becomes important because... There is something about uh, commitment that's happening here, right? He goes on to talk about the Spirit, and um, he says the Spirit, you know, moves any which way the Spirit pleases. You can't control the Spirit. The Spirit's like the wind. It blows this way and that. Uh, if, you ever, if you're a big sports fan, you maybe uh, watch a game with a big wind. There's a stadium in Wellington that Fran and I have visited that is famous. They call it the cake tin because it's just a big, round metal box or metal hoop, and it has the worst winds in the world. The kicker will throw grass up, and the grass goes and falls. And you're like, okay, how am I supposed to kick into that? And Jesus says that's the way the Holy Spirit is. You are not going to predict what way the Holy Spirit's going to go. You're not going to be able to guess ahead of time, oh, this is what's going to happen. And for somebody like Nicodemus, that's a problem. Because Nicodemus likes control. Nicodemus is on the ruling council, right? He likes to vote and make other people do the things that he's voted on. He likes to control when he sees Jesus and who sees him come to Jesus, right? Nicodemus has strangled the control out of this situation. And Jesus goes, you've got to give your life to me. And if that's going to work, you cannot be in control. It is the spirit who will move as he pleases and will move you as he pleases. And you've just got to give up. Uh, in this way, Jesus is the antithesis of a Burger King burger, right? Um, I found this online this week, and this is, if this is a sign of what our culture is like. This is how autonomous and controlling we like to be. Notice the language here. Uh, this is a real sign. Burger King, have it your way. You have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special. And tomorrow's and the day after that. And well, you get the drift. Yes, that's right. We may be the king, but you, my friend, are the almighty ruler. This is blasphemy on a Burger King sign, okay? Now, <laughs> give Burger King, like, a break. They are just trying to be funny and quippy and trying to just tell you you can have your burger however you want. Pickles, no pickles, that's your option, Right? But I think they're smart enough to play on something we like. I want to be the almighty ruler of my life. 
and I want to pick where I go, when I go, how I go, and I want nobody to have anything to say about it. And this is the way that Nicodemus has come to Jesus. I want to hear you speak on my timetable with my audience in my way. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit does whatever he darn well pleases. And you get to deal with the Spirit, not the Spirit gets to deal with you. And so it's a very strong word from Jesus. The Holy Spirit will not fit your agenda. You will fit into his. Uh, it keeps going. Verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Right? If Nicodemus is picking all this up, he's like, wait a second. What happened to me being in control? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have uh, eternal life in him. Um, Jesus is not impressed by Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus comes in, hello, Jesus, I am a member of the Sanhedrin, and I would love to hear you speak before me. And Jesus goes, you bozo, you don't even know what you're talking about. You talk about things you don't understand, I talk about things I do understand. I come to you with spirituality 101, and you're sitting here scratching your head talking about birth canals. Like, you clearly do not know what you're doing. And it's funny that Jesus just rips away his edifice. He's like, I am not impressed with you one bit because you don't know what you're talking about. You, uh, you come to me because you're embarrassed of me. If anybody should be embarrassed that we're having this conversation, it's me, Nicodemus. Right? Jesus should be embarrassed of talking to a leader that understands nothing far more than this leader should be embarrassed to be with Jesus. And so Jesus just doesn't, he doesn't put up with his junk, right? Jesus isn't like, ooh, Sanhedrin, big deal. I don't care. How are you so dull that you don't understand these things? And then he keeps on going. And he talks about this importance of, of being lifted up. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, literary device, kind of a double entendre that is used by John. Uh, John speaks about Jesus being lifted up over and over in his gospel. And the reason he does it is because there is a physical meaning. At some point, <coughs> Jesus will be crucified and put onto a cross. And he will literally be lifted up into the sky upon a cross. But there is also a spiritual meaning to it that Jesus will be glorified, that Jesus will be put on a high pedestal above everyone else, that there will be this way that God shows the glory of himself via Jesus. So he uses this phrase lifted up to talk about the glorification of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus simultaneously. And for first century ears, this would have been really weird. That is not a way you glorify someone. But John says, yes, I believe these are one and the same thing. His crucifixion and glorification happen simultaneously. And so Jesus says, one day I am going to be lifted up. And he then talks about uh, Moses and the desert. Um, 
I don't know if this is a story remember. There's a story in the Hebrew Bible where there are snakes that are attacking the Israelites, going around, venomous snakes, biting, biting them in the heel um, because of something stupid they've done and they deserve to be bitten. And then God says, I'll spare you, but here's how I'm going to spare you. Moses needs to make a, um, like a sculpture of a snake and put it on a stick and then raise it up in the air and anybody who looks at the stick will be saved. Now, just for a moment, I will grant... This is one of those stories that's really kind of hocus pocusy for us, right? Like, I don't know, there's deep spiritual truths in scripture, and then we have snakes on sticks to heal poison bites, and we're like, how exactly does that work? This is the way God chooses to do it. They're very concrete people in the ancient world. Let's just, you know, we'll take it for what it is. But Jesus says, I am that snake. In the same way, it was lifted high in the air, and everyone who looked to that snake was saved. In the same way, you are all poisoned by your sin. And anyone who looks to me when I'm raised up on the cross, they will be saved as well. Uh, just as a side point, uh, to this day, we still have, um, when, you go, when you see an ambulance go by, right? What's the image on it? It's a cross or a stick with a couple of snakes. Um, that's probably more directly related to the Greek god Asclepius. But... It all comes from the same place. Snakes are just a symbol of healing. Um, and the reason for this is because they molt their skin, right? So have you ever seen a, an old nasty snake that's about to get rid of its skin? It looks really dead and decrepit and gross. And then all of a sudden it crawls out of that skin and it leaves behind the old husk of itself. And it's new and alive and pretty again. Well, it's a sign of healing that you can be sick and, and hurt. And then someday you can just come out of that and be new again. Uh, maybe no one cares, but anyways, this is the combination of snakes and healing and Asclepius and Moses. And Jesus plays on all of these themes that are throughout the ancient world. Um, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live in the truth come into the light <clears throat> so that it might be seen plainly what they have done uh, has been done in the light of God. Uh, this is a verse we all know, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. Uh, we know this verse in part because of Rainbow Man. Has anyone ever seen the documentary about Rainbow Man? It's kind of bad. I shouldn't bring it up in church because this guy was a total psychopath. But um, he's he's very odd, twisted, bizarre story, lots of mental illness. And I, I want to say he killed people or tried to kill people. I mean, he was just a bad dude. But he would wear this shirt with a rainbow wig. Um, he would always stand behind the goalposts at NFL games and jump up and down with John 3.16. And it became a really famous verse in part because Rainbow Man was buying thousands of dollars of tickets to NFL games to make sure everybody saw this image because he wanted the world to know that God loved them. Uh, he's a bizarre messenger, but it still has become very commonplace, right? This verse is a verse that you know probably by heart. And at the heart of this verse is this idea that um, Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you. It's interesting because we don't know where Jesus' words end and where John's comments begin. You may have heard me say this before. Ancient Greek does not have quotation marks. 
Okay, so our Bibles think, and I think they're right, that Jesus' last words to Nicodemus in this passage is verse 15, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then verse 16, John goes, hey, let me explain that theologically, and he goes into this, for God so loved the world, and it's John's words. But we don't know. Jesus may have said this uh, directly to Nicodemus. As Jesus is not beyond speaking in the third person, okay? And we have in this moment Jesus showing Nicodemus so much grace and mercy. Jesus um, has every reason to be annoyed with Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen in public with him. Nicodemus is trying to act like a big shot. Nicodemus wants to be in control of his life. And Jesus does not put up with it, and he goes straight at it. But then when he's done, he says, but regardless of these things, if you will come to me and you will believe in me, you will have eternal life. And then John adds his comment, Jesus did not come to condemn, and I think the subtext is, people like Nicodemus. He came to save people like Nicodemus. Uh, some of us may be like Nicodemus. Some of you may have, you know, parked in the back of the lot or walked around the street corners making sure no one saw you walk into church this morning, right? Uh, some of us may still be in a place where nobody in your life knows that you go to church. Um, Jim Gaffigan. Um, the very first episode of the Jim Gaffigan show. Uh, if you don't know Gaffigan, he's a famous comedian, very successful uh, Catholic guy, has like five or six kids, lives in a little tiny apartment in New York City, and he's done a sitcom about his life. And the first episode is about a Bible. He goes to his priest to pick up like some sort of Bible he has to have, and then he has to go to the comedy club to pick up a paycheck. And so he walks into the club with this honking Bible, and they're like, Jim, you believe in Jesus? He's like, yeah, I mean, I believe in Jesus. I mean, not really. I mean, I do. I'm not denying him or forsaking him, but also, I mean, I'm not like that weird kind of a Christian, you know? Like, and the whole thing is 22 minutes of how socially awkward that Jim Gaffigan feels about believing in Jesus and also being a professional comedian. And it, it goes to great extents to where it gets onto social media and then it goes into cable news. And he has Christians denouncing him because he's not Christian enough and atheists denouncing him because he's an idiot who believes in Jesus, right? And the whole thing just explodes. And it's just Gaffigan comedically vomiting all of these feelings he has about having Jesus as his um, guilty pleasure, right? About not wanting people to fully know. Jim doesn't do acts that are like, hey, let me tell you a bunch of Christian jokes. Every once in a while he tells God jokes and it makes people a little uncomfortable. But, you know, like he's just, he's expressing how hard this is. And some of you may be in that exact same spot. That you do not want to go into work with a giant Bible in your arms. Because people go, oh. And this passage is one for you. Um, when we talk about what is... Jesus like? What is it like to be next to Jesus? For people like Nicodemus, it means to be next to someone who does not put up with your junk, but who also wants to forgive you and move past it. Some of us, uh, some of us today, when it comes to our faith, are obnoxious about it. Some of you are loud and proud and out about your faith, and people kind of wish you'd shut up about it. Some of you, maybe you're kind of nonchalant, like, yeah, go to church, me, I don't know, whatever, you know, like, maybe some of you, um, it's still kind of a secret thing you don't share, 
And maybe for some of you, you're still trying to honestly just keep control. Like Nicodemus, you do not want to give your life to Jesus. You can give Sunday morning to Jesus, but your life is a whole other thing. Um, we don't, uh, I don't often do, I don't know. I used to go to church where we always did an invitation at the end of a sermon. The end of every sermon, we did an invitation. Some people call them altar calls where I would say, Hey, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, we're going to sing a song and you can come up and we'll make you look in front of the whole church and tell them how terrible you are or something. You know, like we just, we had these things where people can make these points of decision and we kind of don't do that. But I do want you today, as we think about Nicodemus, to ask yourself what kind of decisions that you have made. Have you made decisions to surrender control of your life, to take Christ on in baptism, to give up your life and let him take over? Are you still fighting with the wind of the Holy Spirit to be in control of your life? Are you still secretive about your faith? There's all of these little places where you may be like Nicodemus today. And Jesus, if you sat next to him, would have this uncanny ability to neither put up with your excuses nor condemn you for them, right? It's an amazing thing he does. He says, Nicodemus, I am not buying what you're selling, but I still love you. And so that's the, the call to you today. If there is something that you need to let go of and you need to allow God to be in control of your life, your excuses are not impressing Jesus. But they also are not making it impossible to follow him. Because he came into this world not to condemn you, but to save you. Do you have any questions about this passage or its application or anything else that we talked about today? Let me, I'll start with Nicodemus very explicitly. Some things I think he's being called to. Uh, I think Jesus is asking him for public confession. I think Jesus is saying you should be willing to acknowledge me in front of your buddies in the Sanhedrin. Uh, and this happens. There are like three or four moments with Nicodemus. And the last one is Nicodemus says, give me his body. I am giving this man a burial because he deserves it. And Nicodemus is kind of coming out in his faith to Jesus. So public confession is one of those things that, that Jesus is asking him for. I do believe that this passage is about baptism. It's about um, what some people refer to as born-again Christianity, I don't like that term because it's been hijacked to mean a whole bunch of things that it doesn't have to mean. But I do, I'm of the belief that Jesus is asking adults at some point in their life to say, I am claiming my faith. Not, I grew up in church and my mom and dad told me I'm supposed to go. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to be too nasty about this. Uh, it's why I disagree, say, with Catholic theology often. Catholics will often do this thing where they, you know, you baptize a baby and people will say, well, I was born Catholic. And I think Jesus would say, that's fine. But at some point in your life, you need to stand up somehow. And confirmation does do this within Catholic tradition. But you need to stand up and say, no, this is my faith. It's not just what I was born into. It's not just what my mom and dad taught me. It's not just what grandma made me do. It's something that I own and I believe. Um, and that's why we practice believer's baptism, like many Protestant churches do. This moment where somebody says, uh, it's like a, a marriage ceremony. Baptism is saying, I am with Jesus, and I am going to get in this water in front of all these people and say, that's who I am. Uh, and there's a symbolism there. When it talks about new birth, baptism is supposed to symbolize burial, going down to the water, and coming up to new life, resurrection. And so I think that's one of the things Jesus is getting at, and that's why it talks about being born of the water. 
Um, some of this, too, is just um, giving your whole life to Jesus. And I think this applies to Nicodemus, is that your faith creeps into everything you do. Some people are very segmented, and so church is what they do on Sunday morning. But um, giving their whole life to Jesus means there's that guy at the office who's really annoying and everybody treats him poorly, but I'm going to treat him well because Jesus wants me to treat people well. And so I'm going to let it creep into my social life. Uh, there's this stuff at work that's shady, right? Like I'm being asked to keep dishonest books at my office or I'm being asked to lie to a government regulator or I'm, I don't know, any kind of thing like that. And bringing your faith in goes, no, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to tell the truth all the time, even if there's corporate pressure not to. Uh, or even a littler thing, there's this um, promotion coming up and I know that Jordan is a better candidate than I am. I could do some things to lie about him to the boss to make him look bad so I could get his job, but I'm not going to do that because I've given my whole life, including my career, to Jesus. And that can become bigger decisions. Some of you have faced this. I have job A where I can have time with my family and I have time for church and I can be generous, or I can have job B where I'm going to be much more prestigious, but I'm not going to see my kids as much and I'm not going to be able to give any time to volunteering. I'm going to take the lower paying, less prestigious job because I don't want my job to be in my way of my faith, right? Those would be all different little ways that you can give more of your life to Jesus. Does that help? Yeah. Yes. Jesus does this from time to time. It's a phrase that he uses throughout the Gospels. Um, it's, I think it means pay attention. I think it means it's, it's just a, it's a rhetorical way to add weight to a sentence. Uh, we do this sometimes. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm going to be honest with you? And then they kind of lay down something true, like deep. Well, they're not lying to you most of the time, right? It's not like you should, uh, I, I lie all the time, but this one moment I'm going to be honest. We say to be honest with you because we want to draw attention to that statement. And I think that's what verily, verily, or uh, truly, indeed, however we translate this. Um, I think that's what it means, is it's a um, rhetorical focus. Also, if there's anyone ever picks on you for saying, well, you shouldn't say to be honest with you because you should be honest all the time, tell them, well, Jesus did it too. Shut up, okay? Because it's just, you know, like this is, this is the thing that happens. I'm sorry. It's a pet peeve of mine. Anyways, any other questions? <laughs>